course where you're learning all these special operations skills, you're just guys are dropping. It was it was pretty fun. It was like yeah. very spy stuff, you know. Like I was yeah. dressed up like an Afghani, and I'd be like sitting in a market with just my radio, like my pistol under my man yeah. pajamas, like mentally preparing for getting mortared. Let's say because you you're there, you can hear it in the air, and you're like. That could land anywhere. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Rodeo Time, the podcast we have in the house, Mr. Dallas Alexander. He is a Canadian Special Operations, and he's come down all the way from Canada, and he's going to tell us his story. Very interesting story. Was How long total were you in the military? Uh, just under 17 years. Got some intense moments that he's going to share with us. We're going to hear about his music. Um, he's got an album, Dallas Alexander. Can't blame my bloodline. So look that up on Spotify. Look him up on Instagram. Follow Spotify, iTunes. Yeah, it's on every digital platform. Gotcha. YouTube probably also. Awesome. So look up Can't Blame My Bloodline. It's awesome music. If you enjoy Texas country or good country music, then uh, you're going to like Dallas. And you're going to love these stories. So I'd like to thank my sponsors, Rock and Roll Denim, American Hats, Mountain Ops Supplements, Total Feeds, can-am side-by-sides which is right out of canada so started up there around you i like that yeah so check out rodeotime.com everyone and uh stand by for this amazing story pal pal so we've got dallas alexander on my man is from canada you're in the military, special operations. You're a musician. Um, I got to hear you on Sean Ryan's show and been listening to your music ever since. That was, uh, I think I listened to the podcast. I don't know when it came out, but I, I listened to it about six months ago and okay. been maybe eight. I can't, maybe it's been a while. I'm going to say down there. I'm, <clears throat> I think January I went. That makes sense. Yeah, so it might have been maybe a full year. <coughs> Excuse me. That, yeah, yeah, I think it was at the start of this or last year, yeah. Um, so, yeah, you got an incredible story. I personally, you know, I know rodeo time. I've had, you know, half a dozen, maybe eight by now, actually military-type guests with stories on. You know, there's uh, a lot of rodeo cowboys. We, uh, we resonate with just... I don't know. We're a very patriotic bunch. Yeah. So we very much appreciate that. what all you guys do. And um, I appreciate what you guys do. There's there's a mutual respect. Yeah, that totally is. You I know? went, there's a rodeo near where I grew up called Lee Park Rodeo in Alberta, Canada. I went every year of my life, I think since I was zero. Like I, the year I was born, I went, my parents said, and every single year of my life until I moved out and moved away from there. But dang. Yeah, I love yeah. it. We uh, um, actually have a lot of uh, rodeo cowboy buddies that are from Canada. You know, there's a lot of rodeos in Canada. Yeah. Um, Calgary is the the big one. Yes, and then sir. I think the second biggest would be Pinocchio. Yeah. But uh, there's a lot of even smaller ones. And um, we've got some buddies. The, the Saddle Bronc World Champ for the last couple of years has been Zeke Thurston. He's from Canada. Dawson Hay. There's bull riders from up there. Um, yeah, a lot of good cowboys come out of Canada. So, 
uh, it's no surprise that you've, you know, you're a big fan of rodeo because there's just, there's a huge culture of cowboys up there and, uh, and is, rodeos. Is it a lot of, do you guys come, like, is it a circuit? Like, I don't know how it works really. Is it a circuit where a lot of Americans come and do Canadian rodeo as well? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, outside of the stampede. Right. So in, in the U S we've got the PRCA professional rodeo Cowboys association. That, that would be like kind of our NFL league. Um, there are some amateur rodeos, you know, like the one here in Graham is an, is an amateur rodeo okay. um, or an open rodeo and anybody can enter it, but there's PRCA rodeos, which would be your bigger ones. And, um, Canada has the CPRA Canadian professional rodeo association. And what they do is they'll, they'll co-sanction some of those rodeos. So you'd have to have your CPRA card, but you got Americans that go up to um, compete in some of those CPRA rodeos, and you'll have Canadians that come down and and uh, compete in the PRCA rodeos. Both countries have their own finals. So there, there's the CPRA okay. finals, yeah, and then there's the, we call it the NFR here in Vegas. And so I think the CPRA finals are in November. And NFR just happened, right? Yes, yeah. and then the NFR is in December. So very cool. Yeah. I'd love to get down to that one year. Uh, there's, there's a big Canadian presence. You know, there's a lot of fans, a lot of the families come and I mean, I bet there's, there's two, three, four in each event from Canada. Hmm. All right. Representing. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Y'all represent for sure. Um, but man, I I don't want to sit here and talk about my story too much. <laughs> I'm just asking you about rodeo. Yeah. Oh, I got a funny story before we begin. So I got in last night at like 1.30. Yeah. And the, uh, so I'm staying at the Airbnb just outside here. Dale B&B. Uh, it was not open. Oh, it wasn't? The door was locked. Was it? <laughs> yeah. So I had to pick the little. No kidding. The little box with this. Did you try to call piece me? Piece of a water bottle. I looked at the box and it was it was something I knew how to pick anyway, and I just uh, cut a little piece out of a water bottle. But I was like, I don't want to call them at one because I got in at like one thirty in the morning. I was like, well, let's just see if I can solve this first. But it's funny, so I apologize for breaking into your place. Oh, that's hilarious. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, the the Airbnb it's really slow during this time of year, and uh, you know, January, mid January in this West Texas town hunting season's over so we usually just block it off and it'll be like i got some rodeo cowboy buddies that are going to stay in it for a little bit and um there's a marine that stayed there night before last that's what you're saying yeah. veteran with a sign i don't know if you follow i i I, he runs around with a lot of black rifle coffee guys either sent me his stuff or i've I've seen him yeah out and about yeah on the Um, world wide web so he would have been the one that locked it probably thinking like of course everybody locks them yeah but I'm standing out there, you know, my little iPhone light on this lock box, and I'm, I'm picking it, and I'm like, everybody in Texas has a gun. <laughs> I am essentially breaking into this place in the middle of the night, and then yeah. a couple dogs start barking. I'm like, better yeah. hurry, better well, hurry. Not everybody, but some of us. <laughs> yeah. yeah, some of us. Um, but I'm not going to act like I know how to use it any better than you do so <laughs> to be honest if somebody came in here i'm gonna pull this out and i'm gonna hand it to you yeah, i'm gonna say here yeah. dallas you take this <laughs> go solve whatever's out there rather than uh-huh. rather than say dallas get behind me <laughs> <laughs> i mean i'm a texan 
you know, I've handled guns all my life and, you know, I'm so glad to get to you. I've got to, I don't just shoot all the time. I shoot so that I know I've got some guns I've never shot, but I'm also just not oblivious to the fact that like, you know, the kind of training that you guys have had, not to mention you've got the longest confirmed sniper kill in the world history of humans. So like, I'm, I'm just, I'm not gonna, I'm going to unapologetically, Oh, there's danger. Here's my gun. <laughs> Take it. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, mm. but yeah, that I should have, uh, probably yeah, there's a lockbox there. I probably should have texted all the info to get in that, but figured it out. But I just thought it was funny. Yeah. <laughs> I gotta tell them the morning I broke in, but I was invited. Yeah. <laughs> sent a video. I knew I was in the right spot. Well, so I'd love to hear your story. And I mean, I'd love, I'd like for you to start it kind of wherever you want, you know, like I know, I mean, we could start as early as childhood. Sounds like you have some rodeo, um, stories in there, but, but I'm just intrigued. I'm a fan. I've been following you on Instagram. I like to thank Sean for introducing me to you. Um, but, uh, yeah, I just want to kind of hear your story. What got you interested into going into the military? I think it was my upbringing. Like I grew up in a tiny Métis settlement called. So it's like, yeah, you're, you're, it's an indigenous community. It's like a mix of our, our treaty Indian indigenous and, you know, the, the white settlers came at one point. So it's a, it's a tiny, I think maybe 300 people on this. I don't even know how big it was thousands and thousands of acres. So tons of space and not a lot of people. And, uh, it was, just roaming the woods constantly. I was always outside. I was always doing like something that was either hockey or being in the forest. And, you know, there's a big hunter community out there. I didn't really hunt or my dad didn't when I was young, but we always found ourselves, you know, creeping around the woods and stuff. And I'd never thought anything of it. Even when we were, you know, camouflaging up and having like BB gun fights in the forest. (laughs) I yeah. never thought about the military, to be honest. I just I wanted to be a hockey player when I was younger, um, and that's what I spent almost any spare time I had was playing hockey or outside. Um, and then at the tail end of playing uh, junior hockey, I was coming to my last year of junior hockey, and it was kind of decision time: do I make this? Try and make this a career? I was not going to go to the NHL. I could have probably played something like an East Coast semi-pro hockey team or something in Europe. Like I was, I was okay, but I wasn't going to the show. Yeah, and it was my last summer. So after my last year of junior hockey, I was working in the oil field in Alberta, Canada. So that's that's where I'm from is Alberta. Um, and the guy I was working with had done, I think it was like a three or four year term with the military. It's just like a, a communications guy or whatever. But he was telling me that we had this special operations unit. And I didn't believe him at first. I was like, I don't know about that. I didn't even really know we had a military in Canada. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I was yeah. like, I'm pretty sure we have some peacekeeping forces, but I didn't, I don't know. I'm like most Americans. I didn't think we had a military. <laughs> it wasn't something necessarily advertised or they didn't make movies about it. Mm-mm. There was no John Rambo. That's right. So nothing with like a Canadian flag on his, you know, his combat yeah. or whatever. So I looked into it. I get onto the, the dial up internet 
and he was telling the truth. We had a we had a counterterrorism, a tier one, which is like, you know, there's and there's hostage rescue and they're doing stuff all over the place. And it blew my mind. And I remember when I found that out, I was like immediately obsessed. My mm. attention went from do I play hockey or or not to I'm joining the military to get to this special operations mm -hmm. unit. Mm -hmm. And then I watched, you know, Black Hawk Down, Tears yeah. of the Sun, like a million times over. Right. If this is anything like that, that is for me. Um, yeah, and it just became my focus. Like I was at what age? Laser beam focus. It was after junior hockey, so probably I want to say I was probably twenty three. Yeah. 23 and then going into 24 so something like that relatively mature borderline like adult yeah especially like, for joining you know basic training and it's like there's a lot of fresh 18 year olds kind of thing do you think that you weren't aware of it just because you grew up in such a small community like maybe yeah it could be like and i didn't really you know i was never big on the news mm -hmm. which i've circled come full circle and i'm not big on the news again yeah uh and I never had any family in the military, really. Gotcha. You just weren't paying attention. I just was not paying attention. I focused yeah. on hockey, and I maybe if you were like in Toronto, lived in the forest. Yeah, I mean, you know, like where you would see reserve Alberta, units doing like stuff or big, maybe you know, like you, you've got buddies that are going to join, and you yeah. would hear about it through them. But yeah. you're in this little bitty town. Yeah. So I had no, no real. I just I wasn't tracking it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um. So you're 24. Yeah, I think it was 23 or 24. So there would have been 2000. Six, 2024 now, 40, so whatever the yeah. math is. Right. I don't know. You look damn good for 40, by the way. Well, thank you. I would have pegged you for late 30s. Good lighting in here. Is that what it is? Yeah. <laughs> also, you have a really good tan for coming from Canada in January. I was just in Cabo like five days ago. Really? Doing a country music okay. uh, getaway thing, yeah. Well, interesting. <laughs> so, yeah, anyways, 24, you jump in. Yeah, so I, I joined, and you have to do two years in the regular force military before you can try out uh, for the unit, mm -hmm. like for our, our special operations unit. I was like, okay, well, let's get it going. That's what I want to do. So I went to the recruiting center, um, like just gung-ho. I'm like, look, sign me up. I want to go to the infantry. I want to go to JTF2. And they're kind of like, all right, kid, yeah, everybody wants to go to JTF2, just and then they, they, you do an aptitude test, and they try to push different trades on you. Like, mm -hmm. oh, you scored pretty good over here. Have you thought about doing whatever, artillery or you know, Air Force or something like that? Um, and I was just, I knew, I had read about it. I knew my plan. I'm like, I want to go to the infantry. I want to try out, do selection, and make it to JTF2. And they told me, they're like, well, the infantry's full. And so I was like, okay, well, just call me when it's not full. <laughs> and I left. I think it was a bit of a trick to try and get me in a different trade because I got a call like two days later. We got a spot for you, and you can go on basic training at the end of this end of this year. Oh, so that's whenever like you weren't even involved yet. You were no, I was like, just like at the recruiting center. So they were so literally me up. Yeah. So you're like, all right, well, I'm not going unless. Yeah. And that was the trick. Okay. Yeah. yeah that sounds like from what I've heard from, you know, the recruiting offices even here in the U.S. Like yeah. sounds like a, a common type, a classic scenario. Move. Classic yeah, recruiting classic. Move. Um. Yeah, so I, I got the, the call a little while later and ended up going. This was almost 2006. It would have been the end of 2005, sorry. I went to basic training. Like, that's your initial military basic mm -hmm. training. Right. Um, and I had prepared 
like crazy. Like I'd been an athlete, you know, up until then. And I was like, okay, this is army. Like this is going to be hard. I was training like a maniac. And then I got there. And I was like, okay, I probably didn't have to train this hard. Like it, yeah. it, basic training was not very really? hard physically. No. Yeah. But I mean, they're taking people from everywhere, all walks of life, all different ages. And kind of, if, as long as you can pass the basic you know, mm -hmm. physical test, you get there and they think they're going to whip you in shape kind of thing. But also maybe I'm not sure about Canada, but like at that point for us, like we were taking anybody in Zach's words, like if you had a pulse. Oh, that's, that's what it was. So that might've been Canada too. That is definitely who yeah. goes into basic training. Yeah. And so if you were, if you were an athlete at all, you were probably ahead of the curve. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Mm. And I prepared, like I was like, right. And ready. Like and I gotta been, go to special operations. I gotta be ready. And then yeah. basic training physically was down here. Now it was a, a big mental shift because you know, they're yell like you get in, they shave your head and everyone's yelling at you. I'm like, why is everybody so angry? You know, <laughs> just like clean right. this and fold that and do this. And like, and I get it. They're, they're taking again, people from all walks of life. And they're like, we got to in a short amount of time, you know, relatively speaking, we got to give this person some kind of discipline. We don't know right. where he came from. Has he ever lived on his own or not? So it's like, you know, they're meticulous to detail and making your bed and polishing your boots and all these things. Yeah. That part I found, I, I found it more annoying than anything. I was like, all right. I was still, I was very focused on just wanting to get to JTF2. Was it, and so it was a lot like full metal jacket for the, you know, like the US. It's yeah. Very similar. Yeah, like that. Up there. Yeah. Okay. It's like, you know, you're doing that stuff to obstacle courses and you're in the mud and you're, everyone's yelling all the time. And, yeah. Um, so it was like that. Yeah. I didn't, you know, the sleep, a little bit of sleep deprivation, nothing crazy mm -hmm. until some of the exercises at the end. But anyway, so there's that basic training and then it went into kind of more specific soldier and infantry stuff. And then I got sent to Edmonton, Alberta, uh, to three PPCLI. And I got there in the summer of 2006. So that was the, the battalion I was first posted to. Or I'm like, okay, I got I to gotta do my two years before I can tell them I want to, you know, sign up and go on selection. Um, and I had a great time there. Like, got in and I, I got some really good, I had some good luck. Like, mm -hmm. when I got in, there was the, the, the uh, platoon and company I was going into I just got back from Afghanistan and I, I guess they had like a pretty rough tour. Mm -hmm. So there's a bunch of guys leaving. So a bunch of new guys kind of filled in these places, um, which meant we were getting, you know, great like the paracourse and reconnaissance. And I ended up getting sniper course right away in that first year, which is like, it's not really heard of in the battalion, but because there was, a mass kind of exodus from at least this company there was there was space so as long as you were performing in these courses you could keep getting them and i was like well if i'm going to be here for two years i might as well be learning right. learning stuff so i got my first uh sniper course there reconnaissance pair some machine gun stuff and then i let my chain of command know immediately like i i want to do selection for jtf2 you know as soon as i'm as i'm eligible which is 2008 and it was uh it was good. It was like a really supportive unit. Guys worked out really hard and trained hard. We had a bunch of guys going to selection and it was a little intimidating. I was training with some guys that were like machines. Like, Dang. And like far fitter than I 
Right. And then you'd see them go to selection. You don't hear anything about selection. It's like this secret thing. And then they'd come back like a few days later. Yeah. And like, well, what happened? I can't tell you, but I just wasn't. You know, and I'm like, oh my god! <laughs> like, what are they doing over you there? You mean like they got they didn't they, make it? They didn't make it. They get cut like, a few days later. Like, so the, the selection is seven days. We would be tracking, right? Like, three of our guys are going. Four of the guys are going. Oh no, two of them came back. Oh, so and so is back three days later. Day four, and like, ah, oh, nobody made it. You're like, wow, what's happening over there? Yeah. So that that part was intimidating. Um, but I spent the the two years in battalion, you know, training and. I didn't deploy. Um, I was supposed to be on one tour to Afghanistan, and I got kind of got tricked. But anyway, it didn't end up happening while I was in uh, battalion, mm-hmm. which I was kind of I was very disappointed about. Actually, I wanted to have a deployment before I went to the unit. Um, but speaking with the recruiter there, they're like, "It's not required. You're going to deploy lots when you get here." But I still wanted it. Yeah. But anyway, that didn't happen. So yeah, I just I trained. And try to learn as much as I could while I was there in battalion. And then in 2008, so I got to battalion in 2006. 2008, I did my my selection and uh, I passed it somehow. <laughs> yeah. So it's only seven days? Seven day selection. And then, uh, which they call, they call it like the second phase of selection. Well, there's like a few phases. So the, the first one is you have to do a physical test at your battalion you know, harder than, than the normal one when you get in. You have to do, like, psychological evaluations. There's a bunch of things. And then they'll take all of these files from people who have passed all the physical tests and got the appropriate scores and then divide it up into a bunch of zeros and you're invited on selection. So they run a bunch of seven-day serials. <clears throat> if you're successful and you pass the seven days with the criteria where they say, okay, you can go on the, what we call a special operations assaulter course. Excuse me. That's uh, it's like varies between, it's like a nine and 10 month course. Mm-hmm. And that's like another part of selection. So through that's that it. entire course where you're learning all these special operations skills, it's uh, you're just guys are dropping. And yeah. So you can get kicked out then. Too. Yeah, yeah. 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 There's so a lot of like safety is kind of the biggest thing. Like if you can't pick up, like uh, CQB stuff, mm-hmm. you know, like Kill House. It's all, you know, you get to live fire. So you're like, you know, a group of guys moving through a building, live fire, different targets. Like safety was big. So there's there's a lot of guys that get, get tossed out for just like not being able to pick it up at the speed that you have to go for, like, you know, hostage rescue things and stuff. Um, It sounded like having read the books and listened to podcasts of guys, you know, going through selection for tier one units here in the u.s it sounded like cqb was what got a lot of guys here too yeah that was what got the most for us and it was like the basic cqb just like when you're learning it Uh is where you see for the most part there's some like you know an advanced cqb where you're helicoptering in or jumping repelling whatever it is some of that but most of the guys i think it's like when you're first learning that skill set is where you would see where there would be a divide. And it was, I don't know if it was just processing time or whatever it was, because you have to make right just fast, so smart fast. decisions, you yeah. know, and there's like real bullets flying everywhere. So it's, it's crazy like, it, to, 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 to hear like who and why certain people were good at it and others weren't, you know, I don't know. Yeah, I have and, no idea. and some of it I'm like, 
it's hard to pinpoint why you know mm-hmm. someone was good and someone just couldn't pick it up in that that time frame or whatever yeah but you did i did almost barely like i enjoyed it uh but i remember i was on one of our like last testing day runs and i had had some like what they call safeties um still to this day there was there was two of them where i was like that i disagree even after like now going to teach cqb and all this stuff i'm like those two shouldn't have been but either way i was like walking a fine line on the last test where if i would have got a safety i would have been eliminated like, eliminated like Dang. down the the recording thing so the last run came down to it and it was like wow a clean run and i was like oh boy thank god <laughs> okay, good. yeah yeah. So CQB is a close quarters battle, right? Yeah. yeah. So, and essentially it's just um, whenever you're maybe clearing the house yeah. or going into a room and you have to, um, you have to process everything very quickly uh, because, you know, you can't shoot the wrong person. There's enemies, there's just people that are non-threats. And then, you know, then you have to make those decisions. But that was not something that was really taught as much prior to 9-11 and you know the wars in iraq and afghanistan right yeah like i don't know i don't even know much about the u.s military but listening to these guys talk it's like prior to that it wasn't as big of a focus and then after the war got going a few years into it yeah yeah well there was still uh like you know fbi and we had our cmp which we ended up taking the unit over from they were doing like hostage rescue CQB. Mm-hmm. Um, I think 9-11 and going to Afghanistan and learning lessons there changed a lot how it was being done. But it also made it become a focus like on all the way from, you know, infantry battalions, I guess like you guys, like your army and Marines and all this stuff. Also into special operations where I think a majority of it before was like kind of only special operations or hostage rescue teams mm-hmm. were doing it, but definitely became more, more prevalent. And there's, it's two different types really sort of the way we train is like, if it's a hostage rescue situation, like you are running, like you're, it's very, very fast. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's quick in rooms, assessing threats immediately. And like you are sprinting, there's no time wasted. If it's like combat clearance, we call it, you're going to you're you're hunting someone. You have a target. You're going to more methodical. It's methodical. You're taking into consideration like your safety and cover when clearing rooms versus we need to get this hostage like before something happens. You know, mm-hmm. if they know we're here or whatever the case is. Right. Yeah. Dang, it's so interesting and it's so. Uh, you know, we were talking about with Zach yesterday. Uh, just being in combat, how it appears to me, and he was, you know, kind of halfway confirming, and we were talking about how, like, you could do everything right that day, and you just you just happen to maybe be standing in the wrong place. Oh, totally. And something go wrong, and it's not your fault. It's not anybody's fault. You're just in the wrong spot at the wrong time. Mm-hmm. And that seems it's probably like, the bad guy's fault, but right. <laughs> it seems no more truer in CQB. Oh yeah. You know, like you just, you, you do everything right going through the door. It just happens to not be your day. Oh yeah. Like there's, you can only mitigate so much risk Mm -hmm. in a building with Mm -hmm. guns and explosives and, you know, whether it's 
IEDs or grenades. Like there's just, there's so much, which is why I think we train so much, you know, or why special operations train so much. It's like that fraction of a second can make the world of difference. Right. Like it can make, it can be the difference between life and death for yeah. you or your teammate. Um, like just a split second. So yeah. That's why, you know, you, I don't know how many, you know, a lot of guys, but it's like, you're training your pistol draw till it's like you know, you're just shaving, just like that initial shot time, target acquisition, all the stuff. The training is just shave, 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 like bits and bits of seconds off because, you know, it, it's it could be the difference between mm-hmm. kind of life and life death. and death. Yeah. yeah, and then there's stuff like you said, like just it happens. You know, yeah, war is chaotic, and but you want to stack the deck in your favor as much as possible. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why, you know, we trained so much or did. Now I'm a civilian. So you get out of, uh, you get out of your seven months. What would that be called? If the week is called selection. So selection. And then that's the special operations assaulter course. Okay. So you're on course. Uh, I think mine ended up being eight months long and it was, it, there was some of the, they call it continuation training. So it's like extra medical training, tactical driving and, like parachute insertion, so hey ho and halo. That was cut a little bit short on my course, and we ended up doing all that stuff after because we needed to, uh, always say deploy, but we were still in Canada. The Olymp, we were, we had the Olympics in Canada, mm-hmm. and so we needed we had guys teams on each coast. We were like just there in case anything happened, and we're you know wrecking all the different uh, venues things were at if anything kicked off, and we were just kind of staged in the mountains ready. So we got cut short a little bit on that stuff. Um, and then uh, the rest of it, uh, the rest of the courses or the rest of the stuff we missed, we just caught up on. After. Gotcha. So that's uh, late 2008? That would have been, so selection was 2008. My assaulter course was uh, 2009. Okay. It was like essentially, I think the course went to January to end of september something like that and then we got we got put into different squadrons and then went and did the olympic getting ready for that so there's a lot of like working in the ocean uh you know we call it mct like maritime Mm counterterrorism. so like if there's you know hostages or situation on a ship if it's at anchor if it's sailing whatever it is so a lot of that stuff and then circled back to kind of some of the other courses and stuff that we had missed on the tail end and so the Canada military, you don't necessarily have all of the, obviously you wouldn't have the the same branches of military that the U.S. has. So like you guys did a lot of the same things that maybe the Army and the Navy would do. Is that right? Or Well, we have, so we have Army, Navy, Air Force. Okay. We don't have Marines. I don't know what your other branches are. The Coast Guard has its own or yeah. something. Um, so we have Army, Navy, Air Force. And then now, when I first got in, we like JTF two and and Seesaw and like another an air helicopter squadron. We were just like each our own individual special operations units, kind of mm-hmm. working together. Now it's another branch, so it's Army, Navy, Air Force, and CanSoftcom. Okay, which is our Canadian Special Operation Forces Command. Um, so it's sort of the same. We're missing a few, and you guys have like a million more soldiers than we do. But it's, it's kind of structured the same. Mm-hmm. So like where, and we've worked with your guys a bunch, but where like, you know, uh, like 
SEAL Team 6, mm-hmm. the, the uh, Bin Laden guys, they have like dive capability, you know, some some maritime hostage rescue stuff. But I, Well, I guess your, your Delta guys do as well, I think. But So they kind of cover the gamut of, you know, in the water, in the mountains, on land. Right. From a special operations context. We do the same. Gotcha. So, uh, 2009, is that your first deployment? 2009, yeah, but I mean, like, it's in brackets because we were in Canada. We were just ready for the Olympics. Um, and uh, the first deployment overseas for me was outside of like a training kind of mission. Would have been 2010. 2010, I went to uh, Afghanistan. Mm. So we were out of Iraq by then. Well, it was the, yeah, the first Iraq was, was, I think it was over. Yeah. Uh, and then we were in the Afghan time. It was before, like, I call it the second Iraq mm-hmm. <laughs> kicked off yeah. again. Gotcha. How was there, your first deployment? What was that like? I thought it was really cool. It At the time, I was a little disappointed. I was, I was on, I was a backup like a spare. So I was training as a spare on this team in case something happened and someone couldn't go or whatever to go do uh, like sort of in and around Kandahar. And, but it was, uh, it was doing like hits. It was doing what we call hits like DAs and, and stuff where you, you know, you intelligence, you have a target and you go try and get them. Um, and that's what I was training for. And that's what I was excited to go do. And then uh, it was looking like I wasn't, gonna be they weren't gonna need a spare so a sergeant major came to me and he was like look there's this other opportunity you can go to afghanistan as well it's a little bit different role and context um and it's it was doing what we call uh source handling operations so like we were out of uh, kabul and it wasn't doing hits it was like doing it's it's like the tactical planning and security so that our intelligence service could meet up with sources essentially. Mm-hmm. So like people that had information on let's say Al Qaeda, people that were affiliated or even members, but you know they're willing to take some pay for some some secrets, but they can't just go say hello in the street. You know what I mean? So we'd have to plan these big operations where it was, you know, we would do surveillance on the person, um, and then you're, you're 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 making them move in a way where you're watching so that you can confirm they're not being surveilled before we pick them up, double check that they're not being surveilled, and then bring them to like a, a safe a safe house or a debrief gotcha. area and do the same on the drop off. So they're completely disconnected from ever having been with a Canadian. You know what yeah. I mean? So there's there's the physical on the ground and there's obviously the electronic with, with phones and stuff. So there's a big game i guess to learn with it but i thought it was really cool you know i I enjoyed it it wasn't the it wasn't what i'd got in to do but looking back on it now i'm like it was it was pretty fun it was like yeah very spy stuff you know like i was dressed up like an afghani and i'd be like sitting in a market with just my radio like my pistol under my man pajamas sitting on a motorbike and be like watch a guy or drive down the street he gets on my bike, go down, walk down another alley, picked up by a van, and we got like it was just it was pretty cool Dang. stuff in the end. Yeah, like born born identity, born yeah. supremacy stuff. There was a lot of that. In that. How much of the time during that deployment are you working with uh, 
U.S. guys? Uh, we didn't really. There was like some helping each other out here and there with the U.S. guys on that deployment. It was more just like social events. We'd go to like the shooting range with them when we didn't have an operation or like there's a lot of networking. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that particular one, it was more just like, hey, let's go meet up with the U.S. dudes or there was like Aussies and New Zealand, just like everyone's in the space. Yeah. So we'd be like, let's go you know, shooting range. Let's go grab a beer with these guys and just look, something's going on. If you could be yeah on call tonight in case something happens like you know just helping each other out percentage wise um what presence did each of the different countries have in Kandahar right then oh well this was in kabul oh okay yeah and oh i don't know the americans yeah you left that's right the americans always have the biggest presence i find anywhere that i've gone um but like 90 10 no maybe not that much not compared to all the countries, but like right. they're like, you know, let's say US is like 60%. Gotcha. And then everyone's kind of just, it's like everyone's pitching in uh-huh. to Team America. Yeah. <laughs> Everywhere yeah. we went, it was kind of like that. Yeah. So I, whenever I was, uh, um, I was in high school, I kind of wanted to go to the Marines, but that was always second behind my dream of rodeo. And, um, you know, got as serious enough to like, I was kind of training with a buddy, but then I just never went to the office. He took off and I did to the recruitment office yeah. and, uh, he, he went to go and I didn't, he couldn't pass the hearing test, made fun of him, fun of him for that all summer. Yeah. But, um, I didn't, I went and rodeoed and, you know, now it's all this time has passed and 20 years of the war has been come and gone. And so, um, Rodeo Cowboys, like I said, we tend to be very patriotic. And, you know, whenever we are uh, listening to the national anthem at the beginning of the rodeo, we're literally in a town. It is that town's party for the year. Yeah. And we are the celebrities that they're coming to watch. And so we get to be, you know, two or three times a weekend, every weekend, we're going to these and, and we get to live this freedom that, I don't know, the rodeo lifestyle is is the epitome of freedom. It's one of those lifestyles that I think, you know, you're your own boss and you've got to perform well to continue to do it, you know, because you got to win your your uh, pay. You can't you're not just getting paid to do it. But regardless, you know, we get chill bumps during our national anthem, as I'm sure Canadian rodeo cowboys get the same during theirs. And um, so I say all that, like having not gone. Like I've always just had like a deep respect and watchful eye on what was happening, but obviously not ever having been to those countries and and definitely during war, like I'm now having to piece together all these stories. And so it's like, it's really interesting, you know, like it's crazy to watch you and Sean talk because there's just a foundation of truth and knowledge. And like you guys knew the smells, the atmosphere the vibe, you know, the culture of those other, you know, the Afghanis, the good guys, the bad guys. And, you, you know, you could feel an enemy as he walked in, like all those things. It's so intriguing to me, you know, even to just watch you guys talk. Yeah. And um, so anyhow, now that I'm, that that's, I guess that's, that's where I, I'm just, that's why I'm asking these random questions just because like, I'm just trying to get my mind wrapped. I've read about 15 of these books that you guys have written about your time over there. And so I'm, I'm piecing it together, but I'm also a little slow. 
yeah, I think it's I think it's cool to see how it all overlaps, you know, with yeah. the different stories and guys that are telling their stories, which I think is good. I think it's inspiring to, you know, the next generation. I think it's it's good for the people, you know, that that support it, but also essentially pay for it. Mm-hmm. Um, to have these these stories and stuff come out and just see where they overlap. Like, oh, that was in Afghanistan yeah. this year. And yeah. We were there in this year. Oh, I met those guys here and then that and this. And, like, it's funny on the Sean Ryan podcast, um, it was after I'd done the podcast, <clears throat> this ranger who was a buddy overseas, we were deployed with kind of a big group, and uh, he's like, hey, man, check out this picture. And he sends me a picture, and we're at, like, we're having, like, a Christmas party at our, our little camp. And it's myself and uh, a bunch of guys and him. And then Kyle Morgan, who was also on Sean Ryan's show. Mm-hmm. And I'd reached out to him and we kind of connected on Instagram. And I'm like, man, this guy looks so familiar. I know yeah. seen him somewhere. Yeah. And he sent the picture and I was like, oh, that's what it was. That's wild. And I sent it to Kyle. I'm like, look at this. He's like, what a small world. Like just these stories overlapping. And that kinda, is crazy. Um, so it's, it's cool to see it all pieced together and hear the different perspective and perspectives and experiences that other guys had too because it's it's all different like right tour to tour roto to roto town to town depending on where you were like it's it's, it's pretty interesting we have a, a similar dynamic and you know obviously the stakes are much different but like with rodeo cowboys how we'll go to you know like this weekend, you know, there'll be guys going to different rodeos, Fort Worth, or, that you know, there's Canadians down here right now going to Fort Worth Stock Show and Rodeo. And, and uh, you know, you come from all over, you go to this rodeo, and there's a baseline of commonalities that you'll have with that person. And you can start a conversation at a different level than if you just bumped into someone you know, at the grocery store, yeah. you know, you have no idea their background, but if you're both entered in this rodeo, then obviously, you know, that, that, that person has a same, you know, you're doing the same trade. You've got the same level of knowledge and like the conversation starts in a different place. Yeah. And I think there's probably a a mutual respect or camaraderie off the bat. Yes. Too. Yeah. Yeah. So like, you know, helping each other behind the shoots and I imagine that's much more intense and, but also very similar with you guys i think it'd be similar for sure it's not always intense there's a lot of like just chilling downtime yeah like you know you're hanging out with guys well i guess maybe the connection might be more intense just because of maybe after yeah doing some stuff together for sure yeah because Yeah. yeah like if you literally just almost died together yeah um so action wise, not as not as much going on in your first deployment as you anticipated. Well, it ended up being action, but just weird, different yeah. action. Like it's just not what I expected. Mm-hmm. I I was ready to go do what I'd been training for. You know, I'm like, let's go run and gun, get guys. And then I was like in a completely different world. But it was like you're still running around Afghanistan every day, and now it's like not in the way that you were. Any sort of like, like any bullets go by you. Uh, yeah, but I don't even think they were intended at me. Like we'd be like somewhere and be like, just shooting breaks out. And we're mm. like, oh, we're in the middle of an operation here. You know, and it's like, gotcha. I'm hidden in the back of a truck with like just a gun port. And I'm like, okay, yeah. if it comes this way, this is our contact drill, we break with. But like one of the craziest things is we, there's a buddy there who used to be in our unit and he had opened like 
I wouldn't call it an Airbnb, but he had a, a, a building where he housed like embassy overflow and stuff. And it was like a secure compound, relatively speaking. And he had a restaurant and a bar and stuff. So we had, we'd gone over, we made that connection as soon as we got there. And, and one day... Just a, a random... Well, he was like, uh, he was a guy from our unit. So we knew he was in Afghanistan. We knew he'd opened a business in Kabul. So he's no longer actually No, he's no active longer active. No. Yeah. Um, but we, you know, we'd gone to his place a few times. It wasn't like a, an active guy with a side hustle. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> Which would have been brilliant. Um, so we had like, we had, you know, he came over a buddy. I'd never met him before that, but we were having a barbecue one day and we did like a barbecue once a week and we'd invite like other team guys over or other intelligence agency people to like the, the house in the city that we lived in. Uh, we were doing a barbecue and I'm like, okay, well let's go get the, let's go get the barbecue buns. Let's go get the stuff. So we're driving downtown. I was like, Oh, you know, this store, there's a better one down the block. I saw some, some better barbecue, <laughs> some hamburger buns down there. So we skipped the store, you know, close to our house and we go to this one, get the buns, get back to our house and we hear like chaos and that was pretty close and we're you're used to hearing stuff in afghanistan there's always stuff blowing up gunfire or whatever um this was like close and then we got a call from him and he's like it was it was very unclear he's like i need your help don't let them take me i'm stuck right now and we're like what the hell there's one just one of our guys I'm like, well what do you say where is he I'm like i don't know and then he calls back again he's like i'm at this store and so we're like what he ended up telling us was like he'd been shot and he's like come and get me before whoever else kind of comes to get me and it ended up being at that grocery store that we just like bypassed Dang. down the block and some guy two guys went in and i think it was they were they they were throwing out hand grenades first and then they were shooting and i think one of them like blew himself up in this store and he was in the back um and he was just like shopping and he like Engaged one of the guys with his pistol. He ended up getting shot, I think, a couple times. The whole store blew up. And so once we kind of got that information out of him, we like, you know, we run out the door, just a quick plan. And I remember so wild. Like I, I ran into the store and I had like my like a little Indiana Jones satchel. <laughs> it just had like a med kit in it, a couple of DDs and, and frags, and like I had my pistol, long gun was in the truck, and I went in and it was just like this fresh exploded grocery store you know what i mean so it's like blood on the street and it smells all kinds of smells and he wasn't in there and then we were, we were like okay well you go this way this way this way we kind of split up in two-man teams i'm like running down the street trying to find where he is um so it was like for i didn't expect that to happen you know yeah. something like that like a grocery store attack and then a friend's in there and now we're running down the streets looking for it was like not something we really trained for yeah you know um so it was, it was like, it was things like that. And there's always, you know. So how did it end? So, yeah, sorry, just leave you hanging. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Uh, so <laughs> there ended up being, a, there was another Canadian guy there working with like, I can't remember what, he was working with some NGO or something. And he ended up finding him it as they were him. like, he, well, he had made his way out of the grocery store. So we got all the story afterwards. He'd made his way out of the grocery store and down the block. And he was like, he, cause he called again. He's like, I'm between these two vehicles. And I'm like, Oh my God. It was like, you know, look for a white Toyota in right. Afghanistan <laughs> running down the street. And, uh, I guess he ended up one of, uh, another Canadian that was there with another agency had like found him on the street 
and they got in an ambulance, like went to the local hospital gotcha. and then ended up moving, I think to, uh, what was the base there? Like Kaya or whatever it was called, um, near the airport. But yeah, so he was found and we're like, okay, good. And we kind of went back to our barbecue, barbecue. <laughs> just like, <laughs> well, it's a Friday or whatever yeah. day it was, you know, Dang. debriefed it, but it was like, because you're in a big city like that, there's just so much. And there would be, you know, there's always like some vehicle blowing up in this alley or mall or someone got hit over here and you're just in it and you're just trying to do this like little piece of your job. But right. You're, you're in a chaotic city. Yeah. So like you you plan every operation. We're like, okay, we're going to do it over here because it's very like specific to where you're going to do it. If you're like look, we're going to tell the source to pick up his phone on this corner, walk down this alley, turn right, get on a motorbike, go down under this bridge, across this bridge, and get in a van. Like, you can't just do that anywhere. Like, it all has to be, you have to do the reconnaissance first, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So if, like, something happened in that area, like, oh, shit, okay, we got to move it to wherever the backup place was or just, like, the completely different side of the city or tell him, can he meet tomorrow? And if not, then... So it was interesting. Yeah. I learned a lot. Um. So was was sniper even in your job title at that point? No. Well, because I was a, I hadn't even done the sniper like the JTF two sniper course yet. Okay, gotcha. But because I was a sniper in battalion, like I'd mm -hmm. done the sniper course and I taught on one before I went on selection. Um, our kind of home defense plan had a little bit of sniping built in. Gotcha. If anything happened, yeah. So, you you get back to Canada. How long was it before your second deployment? Uh, so that one was 2010 and into 11. I think it ended up being nine months or something, close to 10 or 10 months. We got extended a couple times and uh, it ended up being a while. So it was 2011 when I got home. Um, and then that was really the tail end of Afghanistan. So mm -hmm. we, there was a bit of a pause. And I remember being like, well, now what do we do? Like, mm -hmm. and I think it was until 2014. And it was just, like, we're still going hard. You train every day. We were going different training missions here and there. And like, um, but like to really be deployed, it wasn't until 2014. Really? Yeah, I think it was Dang. 2014. So it was like a, you know, that's three years almost. Wow. At least two and a half years. Um, and that seems like a long time. Right. In a, and I just, I, I was new to the unit and I wanted to deploy. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, are you telling me we don't have anywhere to go right now? Like all I heard about was, was like, you know, you're going to have roto after roto after roto. You're going to get to go over as much as you want kind of thing. What does roto mean? Uh, like a rotation. So, oh, gotcha. Yeah, like a deployment. Um, And then I do one, which is not even the, the type of deployment yeah, yeah, yeah. I wanted, even though I enjoyed it. It's like, that's it? Like, what do you mean? Like, yeah. I put all this, like I wanted to come here to do that job. Yeah. Um, So yeah, we had to just, be patient and train. Um, Freaking train for three and a half years. Yeah. And then uh, Iraq, Iraq kind of, or or the next set of missions in Iraq kicked off. And I think it was uh, 2013 or 2014 was, I think it was early 2014. It was like what we call Roto Zero. So the first guys going over. And then uh, I went on this, like the second Roto, mm -hmm. which because we're the military, make it confusing. It's called Roto One. Um, and I just went with, uh, I was part of a sniper team. It was just two of us. So I had a uh, sniper team. So in that 
period off. I'd done now my JTF2 sniper course, and I'd moved to being a sniper in our unit. So from an assault squadron to the sniper group. Gotcha. Um, so that was my first deployment in Iraq was as a, a sniper, and I went with uh, like my team leader and myself attached to like another group of dudes. <clears throat> and actually, my sniper TL is my brother-in-law. <laughs> gotcha. Um, he was not at the time, but yeah. is currently. Um, yeah, and it was uh, it was such a different experience than the first tour, and it was also very different than what I expected because we got there and there was ISIS was like steamrolling Iraq and now they were kind of held at the border like of Kurdistan which everybody else is just Iraq but in Iraq it's very much Kurdistan and Iraq and the Kurds just like made this defense line yeah just holding it ISIS was attack they would try and hold them off try and penetrate push back push forward like it was like very old school. Like you're yeah. on this trench line, essentially. Dang. And then the bad guys are over there. And then like, this is the good guys. You know, it was, right. it was crazy. So a lot of our support was sniper fires, obviously, and airstrikes. So we would like sit on the mountainside for, for for days and look for targets and then call in airstrikes. If we had a JTAC, they would they would do that. And we would uh, be supporting with sniper fire if they came, you know, within sniper you, range. At that point, were you working with? Americans? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we worked with Americans a lot on that tour. Um, all, all kinds of different ways, too. Like, we were staying at a little house just back from that that line, a couple K back, and it was, like, a Canadian team, but there was a bunch of, like, you know, you're just collaborating a lot. Sometimes they'd come out on the OPs with us. There was, like, Green Berets a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and then your Tier 1 guys, it was more working together. I'll just, well, I'll just say doing other things. Yeah. <laughs> that one, that one's, yeah, that was not mine to tell. Um, but yeah, we, we just, we got to work with a lot of Americans, which was really cool. Was there, um, how did they, was that, was, did they, did they give you guys a certain respect level or was there yeah, like for sure. riff? Or? No, 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 no. It was like, there's a, there's a good mutual respect. I think we, mm-hmm. there's always like a, well, with the tier one guys, there's always like a okay, well let's you know they wonder like yeah let's just see and then we'll you know when anytime we'd been deployed with them or, or sharing a, a fob like a, a base or mm-hmm. working together closely, you know we'd do like shooting competitions every week or like go do CQB and then it'd be like oh okay yeah you yeah. guys are good like once once you're like you know Canadians are winning the shooting competition you know right. and then like. It's it's really it's like neck and neck and yeah. like that kind of stuff. It's like okay, we right. There's like, a certain respect yeah, level. Like, all right, you're yeah. in, you're good. Yeah. Um, and then when you go deploy, you know, it's like okay, you're cool up there. Like yeah, yeah, it's earned. Which you're I you're on I, the same team. At I that totally point. understand. You know, it's, yeah, it's, you got to earn it, and I, I get that because you know you have to do that here to get there. Were there any surprises for you? dealing with any of those different branches like somebody that like was way more prepared than you thought or maybe way less i mean um, obviously it be, could be case by case and maybe they were yeah i don't i i was surprised at like man the, the amount of technology 
that America has really for war fighting. Yeah. yeah. Like that was crazy. Yeah. I, I was blown away. At the tier it. one level or just Yeah, at the tier one. Like what you have access to. Like what and th- that's the biggest difference I've ever seen in all the tier one units is like from us to go work with you guys, the access to things and technology that you have is mind blowing. Dang. Like Dude to dude, shooting range stuff, good to go. CQB, you know, para, all this stuff. Like, we, we cross-train and all kinds of stuff with you guys. But, like, what you have to back up that force kind of thing, mm-hmm. that makes sense. Um, it, it was it was mind-blowing. Dang. Like, yeah. Interesting. So, um, how often were you seeing action on that deployment? That one was a lot. That one was, like, that was very busy. So, we were kind of, I was kind of doing two different things. We were on the... Uh, this kind of front line. Um, and then we would be doing uh, hits in the cities. So even within Kurdistan, there was, you know, there was obviously still bad guys that would infiltrate somehow, been there, working with, you know. So we would get, you know, all the intelligence down and we would go do hits like in some of the different cities. So that's like, that's what I was looking for the first tour. You know, it's right. Like you're alleyway in town going into this building grabbing this guy in the middle of the night or whatever um and then on the front line it was supporting with sniper fire and airstrikes and that's where most of it like all the city stuff was generally pretty i I thought it was like fun that's Mm -hmm. the right word to use but it it wasn't action really because like just you know in the middle of the night there's five guys in your room (laughs) with like night vision you're like you're not putting up much of a fight at that point. Yeah. Um, but on the on the, the front line is where it was like, yeah, we were getting, there was a lot of, uh, there was some gunfire and stuff exchanged, but even that, because of the ranges, it had to be snipers. Like if, if someone came within like AK range, they were getting wasted immediately. Yeah. So they learned not to do that really fast. And then these like rockets and mortars were the, were the big ones, which is like, I've said this before, it's, it's a strange thing because it's, I never really thought about it like mentally preparing for getting mortared, let's say, because you, you're there, you can hear it in the air and you're like, that could land anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that could land right on my head. Right. I could land right over there. And if we're getting attacked by mortars, which happened a handful of times, it's like, boom, right over there. Well, oh, I'm glad yeah. I wasn't that guy, you know, like, yeah. or it hits, like, it's just, it's crazy because it's such a, a mental thing yeah. that I didn't really think about. You hope you're standing in the right spot. Yeah. And I remember the very last job of that tour, I was, like, viciously sick. I had, like, terrible diarrhea. <laughs> Sorry, hey, everybody. Um, and they, it was, like, the last OP we were going on before we went home. And my, my well, my now brother, brother-in-law, Chris was my TL. He's like, look, stay back from this one. Like, you're obviously, you know, you're not doing well. I'm like, no, there's no way I'm not coming on like the last. And it was like one of the busiest because mm-hmm. it was, it was like maybe, I'll say 15 or 1700 meters to like the, a town. Mm-hmm. And so that was one of the, of uh, just a few places where it was such a close proximity to like a built up area. So they still had guys in there fighting from the town, which means it was all within sniper fire range so i was like i'm not missing this one 
But I remember I was like on the line, crawling back, running back to like this, the worst like toilet setup you can imagine in the field. And like going, going back to the line, going back to the line. And then we started getting mortared in this position. And I remember I was like sitting on this like, I don't know, it was like this weird bucket thing with mud around it. And I was like, just don't let me get hit on this. Oh, don't let me get hit on this. Don't let it be like this. You yeah, know? that's hilarious. Uh, I found it pretty funny that that's what I was thinking. Like, well, yeah. I'm on this like disgusting right. outhouse or whatever. Um, but it was it was just something that surprised me. I never thought about mortars. Like yeah. we never really talked, you know, like it was just, I don't know. It wasn't in my, in my brain. I was ready to like, okay, bullets and gunfire and you know, grenades and RPGs and all this stuff. I just never thought about mortars. And it was a big part of their like playbook. How many days a week did you find yourself sitting behind a long gun in a sniper um, type position? In that first tour, a lot. We Very tried to get out a lot. There was, when we first got there, there's like some stuff that happened and there was a Canadian casualty from like our our kind of little brother unit. Uh, and so they put a big hold on a bunch of operations. When we first got there, it was a bit slow. We were trying to navigate. They put in a bunch of new rules and you can't do this and you can't do that. And so we were trying to figure out how we could, you know, yeah. circumvent, work in the gray space, we call it, right, to get out there. And it took a bit and then we, then we figured it out. But once we did, like we were out there as much as we possibly could. It, it mm -hmm. was like, and it would depend if we had other, other tasks or not. And there would be sometimes we'd go, you know, a week or two straight and then we'd go back into some other cities and towns and do some stuff and then, and, and come back. But we were trying to be out there as much as possible. Mm -hmm. Cause I was like, and I, this was my first sniper deployment. I was like so yeah. fired up the first time we went out, it was a two day OP and like you get into a position like that and I was sharing with Kurds and we had some other guys with us and like you get into what we call an OP routine. So someone's watching all the time or two guys or three guys and then the other two or three, depending on how many people you're with, are like you're chilling out, you're sleeping, you rotate all through the night. Most yeah. of the time in the daytime, everybody's up in case something happens. They want to like get out of it. In the nighttime when it slows down, a couple guys on the glass and you can go to sleep. Uh, you just rotate through kind of shifts but i like i didn't sleep at all i was like two i'm like i'm not missing a thing if something happens and then i stayed up for two days straight and uh and like my my tl who'd like been a sniper forever was like all right i'm going to sleep <laughs> wake me yeah. up if anything happens just like you know he's done it he's seasoned he knows yeah i stayed up for like two nights of not a single thing like didn't see anything didn't see anyone nothing happened and i was like yeah okay well maybe next one i'll like i'll rotate with you and we'll, we'll go sleep because we went to this one because some of the kurds in the line were like look we get attacked from that building every single night and i'm like oh perfect i'm here with a 50 cal nothing happened not a soul damn yeah i just ended up really tired yeah chewed a lot of copenhagen <laughs> so um how long were you over there for that one that first tour i think it was only four months yeah yeah and then you come back home. Yeah, come back home. So that one was 2014. I can't remember if it, if it overlapped into 2015, if that was like a Christmas tour. But 20, 2014 anyway. Um, and then back home, and you uh, do some like post-deployment leave and stuff, and you get back into training. 
Yeah. Get ready for the next one. Probably not as long of a wait before. No, it was the, I think I went back in the end of 2016. Yeah. So 2014, I was back. I think it overlapped. 2014 and 15. And then I went again, I think the end of 2016. So still overlapped into 2017. Almost two years. Or a year and a half. I ended up being like a year, a year and a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Because in that time now, that's probably, you know, three more deployments, which three other sniper deaths went yeah. sort of thing. Um, and they had actually cut the numbers of snipers, which made no sense. So that the first Roto, Roto Zero, had a four-man sniper team. And they were, and like, in a battle space like that, like, I don't want to say snipers are doing everything, but we're doing a lot. Yeah. And then the chain of command is like, oh, we're not going to bring as many snipers on this next one. Yeah. <laughs> like, what? The recommendation from the sniper TL is like, we need two more, actually. We need six snipers out here. Yeah. They're like, we're going to cut it to two. Like, you know, chain of command, okay. So the two of us went halfway through the tour. They sent two more snipers on ours, which is good. So but of course. Down to two, and then it went back up, and we, we stayed at that. But even then, you come home, another debt goes, another get goes, and then it's a year before you're going again. Mm-hmm. So... Second one, uh, yeah, I think it was the end of 2016 into 2017, I think was timeline. So how'd that one go? That one was good. Now, I had been there, and uh, I I sort of knew what to expect, but it was still changing rapidly. So, you know, you hear stories, talk to the guys who come home, talk to the next guys, what's happening, where you at. And that was the first tour. uh, So that was my second tour in Iraq, but it was the first time I got into Mosul. Mm. which I thought was pretty cool because I remember I was on a mountainside looking and it way off in the distance. You could just see some lights. And we're like, that's the city of Mosul. Like, mm-hmm. wow. Yeah. And I remember turning, I can't remember how old, 30-something, 34 maybe, 33-something. I was on the OP for my birthday and I was like sitting on this mountain and I brought a cigar and a little flask and I was like overlooking like this it's crazy you look down the line at night and it's just like these little lights on this trench line yeah that goes forever and then you're looking in like no man's land and then wherever isis is and at mosul i remember I smoked this cigar and like had a couple sips of whiskey this is a pretty cool birthday <laughs> like yeah it's like this is all right you know yeah it was calm that night and it was just like calm cool in the mountains and i was like it's a pretty unique experience. No kidding. Yeah. Is that the deployment where you had the long shot? No. So that was the one that I was saying where I, the first point we were looking at Mosul. The next one, 2016, 2017, is when we actually got in to the city for the first oh, time. Oh, okay. So it was cool to see from back here, now the progress of a few tours, we're like, we're going into the city. Um, <clears throat> and this one, again, was a mix. I was doing uh, sniper stuff. And then, uh, like, assaulter, I don't know, yeah, gunfighter stuff. So it, yeah. a lot of this was in the city, just, like, you're playing clothes, but nighttime. So it's like, here's a target. Dang. I'm going to go get him. Uh, so it was kind of back and forth with that. And then this one, our, our deck commander, so we are a four-man sniper team on this as well. And I remember as soon as we got to country, he's, like, he's like analyzing this map of Mosul, and he's like, Look at the shadow that this building is casting. It's the biggest building in the whole city. And I'm like, wow, I would have never looked at it that way. He's like, we got to get in that building. 
It's like right on the riverbank. They had just kind of pushed ISIS uh, out of what would have been East Mosul, whatever it was, to the other side. So like the last stronghold now was I think West Mosul. I could be confusing these, but either way, there's a river dividing where Iraqis and supporting forces had pushed ISIS to the other side of the river and they're kind of closing in from all sides. And like yeah. Mosul was the last stronghold uh, for ISIS in that area. And so eventually, after going in a few times to the city here and there, uh, he ended up selling the chain of command on letting us go occupy this this big building, which is the the Nineveh Hotel on the on the river in Mosul. And uh, there was Iraqi, I think, army police had is that a presence. Shirt there. says, yeah. So this is why I made these shirts. Actually, this is like part of my merch. Is this? End of a hotel. That's badass. So I got this picture from like a shoehorn that I found in the hotel. I gave it to an artist. I'm like, can you make this into something I put on a t-shirt? What is that? And he's like, hell yeah. So this is like, none of us like a word that goes way back. Like this is like, it's like Babylon area. Uh -huh. You know, like this is where like the start of everything kind of was. So I don't know what this is. There's some significance because people have recognized it. Really? Um, but this was, it used to be, and you can Google it, this hotel. It used to be apparently like this luxury, beautiful spot. And then war broke. Like the, the yeah. room we ended up at the top floor was like Saddam's like presidential suite. No kidding. Yeah. So apparently it was beautiful, like gorgeous river. What was that room like when you were in it? Oh, it was not <laughs> presidential. When we got into that building, this building had been fought over and bombed. It was just like. It was an absolute disaster. Gotcha. Uh, all the ceilings were collapsed. There's just, you know, wood and like a, like a war-torn country type war building. War-torn building. Yeah. Um, I've got some videos I can show you. It's like, it's just crazy. It was it was a mess. Yeah. Um, But there was an Iraqi force occupying, I think the third floor or something, using it, looking uh, out to the, across the river. Um, So we, we ended up getting uh, approval to go occupy like an op on the top floor so, so you just have to walk by him every day on your way to work like, yeah hey guys good morning go by you morning uh oh sort of but no you mean the good guys yeah like the the iraqis that we were helping gotcha okay to fight i was joking ISIS. i thought you meant like there were some bad guys in there but oh no yeah <laughs> wouldn't have been in there long hey guys uh, <laughs> we're gonna go up here yeah we'll fight you from up there you be down here no but they had it occupied already the iraqis the good guys. Um, so it was, that was part of the cell is we're like, look, it's, it's already occupied by them, which means they have like ground level security. Let us go occupy the top floor. And this would be a perfect observation point for, because we were, we were kind of waiting for the Iraqi forces that we were supporting to push from the North through old Mosul, which was like the last stronghold. So we would have been in the building perpendicular to this fight helping support from there mm -hmm. and that's how it got sold and um yeah so we, we we moved in there um and uh set up like this massive op routine so it was us with some squadron guys and just like a team like we had some linguists and a couple specialists and stuff and we took the top floor and like the enemy facing side was all of where you had to be tactical and the way we built it in the back so there's rooms on the back side 
rooms on the the enemy side let's say mm-hmm. and on the back side you know you could chill out you could yeah you could gears there your bed's there i went on like the back balcony all the time in suntan <laughs> yeah um and then you would go up to the front position and that would be where we would watch and look for targets and, yeah and call stuff out but so a lot of that was supporting by airstrikes because you could see we were there for 50 some 52 days i think and it was on and off one week at a time or two weeks at a time we'd go back to base and like you know just regroup and see and because we were just waiting for this iraqi push essentially but all that time you get to build a picture of the city mm-hmm. which is like you know sniping's like 95 percent just watching things so we had a, an amazing picture build like where the sniper team communication was like you know this building here's the range here and i know we both know exactly where it is so yeah. you imagine looking into a city i'm telling you like hey i see a guy uh, he's like on the street and you know you're like there's yeah, a million yeah, yeah. streets we have everything it's it's a way you communicate but if you've sniping. been there for 50 days yeah and i think and like i've said this before like what makes in my opinion the most lethal sniper teams are the ones that could communicate fast mm. so if you're like you don't have to talk and i just say red building and you know that it's 1400 meters and i give you a wind call like yeah then it's done that guy doesn't go anywhere right but if i'm like okay so look all the way from the right, there should be, and you talk too much, and then the guy's gone, let's say, you know? Right. So the faster you can be with that team communication, faster the bad guys got. Yeah. Um, so, so we built that picture and became very familiar with everything. So when that Iraqi push finally did happen, and this was like the last week of our tour, we're like, okay, we're sitting here not doing too much. Yeah. And I don't want, and this tour, I think it was, ended up being six or seven months. Like, I do not want all of this to have been for nothing. And then yeah. we hand it over to the next guys coming in and they support this fight, you know? So the Iraqis ended up pushing and we ended up supporting with sniper fire. And that's the, that's where we broke the, the long shot record. So how did that go down? So I think it was the, the second day of the push. So it was very weird. Like they were rolling from the north. And at this point, it was like from our position around 4K, just over 4K. And it kind of, it got a little bit closer to us as the fight came on, but it was around 4K, 4.5K, um, where most of it was happening. And, Which is how many miles for our American Oh, yeah. Sister. That's probably <laughs> like uh, three, yeah, two, yeah. 2.75 miles, something like that. We could look almost the conversion yeah. calculator, um, but at that point we were not we were not shooting our sniper guns. We were looking for airstrike opportunities where we kind of support. Um, but they the second day they started getting closer, and I remember sitting with my buddy who was the TL of our team, Ben, and I was like, I think today is the day we could start engaging. So to back up before we went overseas, we came down here to Canadian Texas, mm-hmm. trained with accuracy first. Um, and this company, TACCOM HQ, brought this little piece of gear that was a prism. Put it in front of your scope, and it just, a prism, just reflects the image. Yeah. Which was a game changer for long-range shooting. Because previously, if you know how a rifle works, you're behind glass, and let's say you can dial your scope, you run out of room at a certain range, right? Like, right. you can only shoot so far. Yeah. And then you can angle your gun up higher if you have a reference point, and you just, like, that yeah. will dictate, other than the round 
ballistically running out of energy yeah. will dictate how far you can shoot. Kind of like stacking a pin on a bow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like that, and you can imagine you have like yes. 20 pins. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> exactly. So the problem is if you're behind the gun, you can't see now what the spotter's looking at. You're looking at the clouds. If you're right. lucky, you're looking at a telephone tower or something. So the, it, historically, it had been really hard to shoot this far. But now with this prism reflecting the image, you could have your gun where it's required for that elevation or distance. And you can and you're see the both target. Looking at the target. The shooter's looking at the target. The spotter's looking at the target. Game changer. So, what at what point do you need the prism? How uh, far out? Uh, like it's real handy at like with a fifty cal, I'd say like twenty four hundred meters. Because, which is which is Oh yeah. So like <laughs> is that a how far is that? Like <laughs> one and a half miles, we'll say. Yeah, yeah. Something like that. Um, I got. I went to the. Um, I did some uh, content for the army, and I got to shoot with their uh, army marksmanship unit, and we shot a mile. I got to shoot a mile. Yeah. And it was it was with a gun, almost about like a three three eight. Okay. Yeah. I don't know exactly what the gun was. I can't remember now, but um, it was raining. God, it was wet. It was cold, and so like Perfect. I mean I'm pretty extreme, you know. So. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, uh, we didn't necessarily need a prism. Yeah, no, I, you most scopes are good. Like even 22, 2400 meters, like you're just you're starting to work at the bottom of that reticle. Like you can dial up mm -hmm. most of it, but then you've got to start holding in the reticle, you know? Mm -hmm. Like the pins on a bow. Right. Until you're like you're at the bottom of your reticle and you're maxed out for elevation. In like I could be wrong ballistically. I think it's like between, you know, 2400 and 2800, somewhere in there. It's like it's more comfortable to just have on a prism. And have the guy in the crosshair. Gotcha. Um, so anyway, this this little piece of gear was introduced to us. And I think we we went out the door with the first one overseas. But when we got it, the point of the story is we were shooting in Texas here, and I we were down there with our sniper troop and like some of the the chain of command. And when we got it, I was like, I promise you guys, on this tour, we're gonna break the world record. You just had that feeling. I had that feeling. I'd no been there, kidding. and I was like, what this does for us extending the range. Like it's a whole new world. I'm like, yeah. so I was like, I promise you, we will break the world record on this tour. Yeah, <laughs> so it's pretty funny. And then, uh, yeah, in that in that hotel, that fight came uh, kind of from the 4K. I really got to should have had this set up in miles, but to like the three three and a half kilometer inches, two point two miles. So that's where it was the next day. And that's when we started engaging these guys. And what we were looking to do at first is just we're sending sniper rounds so that they would run into a building and then we'd call an airstrike. Mm. And we're just, you know, kind of wrangling them up. So the goal, 50 cal. if you but, hit them, great. Yeah. But if you didn't, the goal was was just, you know, to that's get That's right. Yeah. And I actually, my buddy, so there's the setup we had when this fight kicked off was shooter spotter on one side, four-man sniper team. And maybe eight to ten feet over was another shooter spotter team. So there's the four of us. And we're working together and then just working like in our own little team. So we're, we're kind of just talking back and forth. And at this point, there's a fight happening down there three kilometers away, three and a half kilometers away. So we, we moved forward, not like right to the edge of the balcony. We're still sucked in the room maybe 12 feet or so, but moved forward a bit so that our arcs were wide open. And we were just like, okay, now we can, we can actually we can talk out here 
there's a there's a fight happening down there. They're not looking this way three and a half kilometers for anything because they're fighting in the streets. So we moved forward a bit, and that was the that's how we were running. Two guys, and it was off these big like dinner tables we found sort of thing. So the, the 50 cows on top, spotter behind the shooter. And, we and just, you're laying down? Uh, well, like you're like shooting from a table. Okay. So, so you'd you, be like, oh, sort right. of like hunched over standing. The spotter's behind, either sitting on whatever or, or standing. And uh, we just swapped out back and forth like shooter, spotter. Um, so my buddy on the other gun, so Ben and Josh were on the, on the gun to my right, which is our TL and one of the other guys in our debt. And I was a 2IC with like my shooter, Scott. And Josh had sent around and it ricocheted and then hit a guy. And it was like, you know, maybe 2.4 miles, something like that, 2.3 miles. And we we were both watching this area and we're like, wow, like that's the longest shot I've ever seen hit somebody. And this guy dropped and he was on the ground and they have these little motorbikes isis did that would like go pick up their casualties and bring them off to wherever they were treating them and we we're like hmm so he broke the record well it was a hit he didn't he didn't kill the guy yeah so we're like it's just the longest shot i'd ever seen hit somebody uh, and it was a ricochet off the ground too um right. but we're like wow and then shortly after that is when uh a bunch of fighters were engaging these uh iraqis that we were supporting Sent some rounds and they hit in this building. We called an airstrike, but it was a dud. Like the the missile, like the bomb didn't go off, which was rare. I'd never seen it before. And then uh, out the back, like second story window, this guy started lowering his like his fighting equipment, and you could see him. He's lowering his uh, his AK. So I was spotting at this time. So I was behind the gun, like behind Scott who was shooting, and on the other side, uh, Josh was shooting, and Ben was behind him. So I'm like, okay, this guy's coming down. I'm like, hey, Scott, corner of this building. Here's your elevation and wind call. He's like, come on, stand by. I'm like, send it. They did the same thing simultaneously. We didn't know. Like, we didn't coordinate it. So he sends his round. It's like, two sniper rounds go down. It's 2.2 miles because this was the long shot. 9.9 seconds later, like almost 10 seconds later, the guy's finally, he's climbed down. He goes down to pick up his, uh, his gun and it like hit him right through kind of the back and it's a 50 cal so obviously he crumbled he rolled down this little hill i'm like hit and they're like hit <laughs> like no that was us <laughs> that was us we don't know which round it was still we call, call it a team effort but uh yeah it was that was that was the long the long one dang and uh ended up right after that it was a crazy thing is the, a few more fighters came out of that building and they ran to the alley, this like corner of an alleyway because they didn't know where they were getting shot from. And so I'm like, okay, Scott, go over it. And we call it the alley. So he knew exactly where it was. I'm like, go over the alley. Same wind call, like spotter on. He's like, stand by, send it. So he shoots. And now there's four of them stacked up on this corner and they're like looking around the corner. But like we are looking at them, right? Yeah. The round goes and it hits like right between all of their heads which I didn't, uh, through the spotting scope, you know, three and a half kilometers, 2.2 miles away, send it, I'm looking at the guys. They all, like the, the round impacts and they they all hit the ground. It was like something I'd never seen. I was like, did we just get like a triple kill? What, like what? <laughs> Scott got up from his gun. He's like, oh my God. Like, yeah. I'm like, get back on your gun. But like, I don't, and I'm just watching. And then they all like, 
shake it off, slowly get up and run away. And I was like, oh, no. But that was almost a crazier shot than like the one that had just happened. Yeah. And broke the world record. But it was it was wild to see. Dang. It was wild to see it be so consistent at that range too. Like, because even just, you know, variance in feet per second because of powder or whatever. Like every round, even match grade stuff is you know, it burns slightly differently. Like the feet per second is a little bit. And at that range, that's that's a lot. Mm -hmm. Like the it so to see it be that effective and accurate was pretty cool. So you wouldn't be able to shoot the two point two shot, two point two mile shot with a um without the prism. You wouldn't be able to see the target in a scope. That's right. You wouldn't like it would be a lot of luck. <laughs> Yeah, we'll say because your your reference point, the shooter would be looking into the sky, like, right? Unless there was just so happened to be a telephone tower where it could be like, okay, move up ten mils, and you can like on the telephone tower. Okay, there's where my whole point of aim is. Okay, I'm up ten mils. Send it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Now give me two mils to the right for a wind call, and you're just like, oh my god, you're measuring all these little lines. Right. It's just way better. Yeah. When you can both be looking at the same target. Is that something they're all using now? I would assume so. I mean, I'm out now, but we definitely are. And I know the TACCOM HQ is the company, and they uh, they have got the products up to the right people. Yeah. Dang. So was and that was and then how many days after the two point two? You and your team. Uh, we were there still. I think five more days, and it was it was like the best week of sniping because the yeah. the fight actually got a little bit closer to us every day. Uh huh. And it was weird. It would only be from like. Four in the morning, four thirty in the morning to like lunchtime, and yeah. then it would all die down, all the fighting. Right. And I was just watching. And the next morning, someone would like either come into our room and be like, "Hey, snipers, like, get on the guns. They're moving about." And it's like, "Okay, get on and make a coffee and wait for them. Switch up on the gun." Um, yeah, and it just it got closer and closer and closer. So there's just a lot more engagements. What were some of the, the longer shots that you got to make pulling the trigger? Uh, I think the, I think it was like 21 to 2200. Oh man, what would that be a mile? So like uh, 1.8 yeah. miles, something like that. Damn. Yeah. And that was, again, it was this, this house and there was like a bunch of fighters there and we were, we were trying to just, get them in there calling it because there's so many of them uh -huh. calling airstrike and i remember seeing this this guy and uh it was like through it looked to be because we were looking at kind of the back looked like looking out through the kitchen window and he's like they didn't know where the shooting was come from and just put one right in like it's a 50 cal and now it's also a little bit closer you could see it more and like right through center of mass here he dropped and then we ended up calling an airstrike anyway but i was happy to have made the shot before we did right um yeah, that was that was like the only engagement I think of mine that I was like very sure of. Mm -hmm. Everything else, like when I was on the gun anyway, was like, okay, there's a guy shooting from that window. You put a round in, and then the shooting stops. Shooting stops. You're like, well, I don't know what's happening on the other side of that. <laughs> you know? Yeah, he's not having a good day because it's a fifty cal, but I don't know what happened. So that was more of mine. It was when I was spotting is when I really got to see the big picture of like effective you know right like there was a counter sniper so there's a sniper team that must have been 
sent out to like see where this fire was coming from. Because mm-hmm. one of the guys in the position with us was like, hey, and it was like a squadron guy and they were looking from like another room. It's like, look under this tractor trailer here. And I was like, okay, I'll keep an eye on it. And I was spotting and Scott was on the gun. And then uh, like the way the sun changed, I could see there was like a silhouette and it looked like a sniper silhouette. Like when you go work a sniper course and a student doesn't take into consideration lighting and his background stuff, it's like you leave a silhouette when you're looking for like a student stalking. It's like very telltale sniper thing. And I was like, okay, but it's not moving a lot. It's pretty disciplined if that's a, a sniper team. And then sure enough, I saw them like in the shadow. So it's underneath like a, an 18 wheeler trailer. Mm-hmm. And behind them was like a lighter grass and they were in the shadow of the truck. You see a little bit of a dark silhouette. I saw them like put down the gun. I saw like the silhouette of the gun move through and they're moving slowly. Like they, they knew what they were doing. It's like, no way. So he Damn. posts up beside the shooter spot. I could see like the silhouette again. So I get Scott on. Make He takes a shot. I think it was 2,200 meters. Again, whatever that is in miles. I don't know. 2,250, something like that. Uh, and it was off by wind. I made a correction and he put it like, I like to think it went right through the scope. It's too far to tell. But it, it hit uh, it hit the shooter. And then the spotter, I could see, he got up. And he's like yanking on the rifle, but he must have had it strapped. Mm. The shooter must have had like, the, the gun strap on because he couldn't get it. Sent another round and he just, spotter ran. And I could see him like alleyway, alleyway. and Because I could only see him cross the alleys. We were trying to time it. Like he'll be at this alleyway. No, no, he missed. Because it's still probably a six-second flight time or something, whatever uh-huh. it is. And he's just like, he ran out. There was like a report that came in later that we heard intercepted. No more sniper infiltration by daytime. Uh, but that was interesting to be like in a counter sniper kind of situation. Damn. Yeah. Yeah. Dang. That would be just one of those situations where just all the years of training just had, you know, like you just, you, you, you were out, you out trained him. Yeah. And it was something I didn't really, you had more skill than he did. Well, that or we had the upper hand in the fact that we were already in position and they which, had to move in position, which is yeah. challenging. You know what I mean? If you someone's already watching and now you have to get into position, that's harder than if you're in position. Do you know what I mean? Like the, oh, vice, for sure. the vice versa. So for sure. It could have been that. Maybe they were better than us. I don't know. But, right. But we got Dang, them. the upper hand. Wow. Yeah, there's no tell. I mean, it's crazy just, you know, reading some of the stories. Like, it's crazy. There's, there's, uh, there's just a number on paper, and then there's no telling how many it actually was. Yeah. For guys like yourself. Yeah. This is man, that was a really good time there. Yeah. Yeah. And even like not just the doing that part of the job we trained so long, but just I think back to it a lot. Like just the chilling in the you know, in the hotel. And there's a lot of times I'd go to the rooftop in Suntan. That's <laughs> wild. I'd get in trouble. So when you're in the room that you're sniping out of, you 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 guys are obviously like probably super still. Yeah, like so a lot of it we just we end up building the OP so that we can move more freely without being seen. So like the approaches would be behind couches, whatever. And we we actually cut a hole through the wall from a bathroom that we could get into, cut a hole in the wall and had our spotting scopes for most of it back through that, like this little hole in the wall. So now mm-hmm. it's like top of a building, back of a room hole in the wall three kilometers away that's where we're watching from most of the time it wasn't until the the actual fight kicked off we're like okay we'll move forward get better arcs 
gotcha. and be able to support and help her. Yeah. So yeah, you just, you build it up and it's like anywhere we go, it's like, we just try and make it a little better every day. You know, we're like cleaning the floors and like making it our own. Uh-huh. Uh, it was fun. We just like do the OP thing and come back and like smoke these little cigars and watch alone on an iPad. <laughs> survival show you know yeah for sure <laughs> did uh and was that your last deployment no i did one more in uh 2018 or 19 it's been 2018 i think so five deployments in 10 years so one two three four deployments so wait, my first one was 20 what's it 2014 i got out a year and a half ago now so like from 2014 to 2019, I guess is when it started trickling off for me in special operations. Yeah, it was five deployments, I think. And there's a couple of little small things I could say. We go here and train some people or go there. But yeah, yeah, like uh, deployments to like Iraq or Afghanistan. Yeah, yeah. And the last one was pretty non-eventful, right? Uh, like ISIS had kind of been pushed out. We were just doing like targeting again in cities and it was slow and because we'd been there so long there was a million rules and you needed approvals everywhere and we're just trying to get out the door and like that one was more annoying mm -hmm. yeah it, was it like, wasn't the wild west anymore no it's and that's like anywhere you get a row to zero it's way less oversight and you know red tape essentially and then how much did that uh die off from one to the end your first oh drastic to the last one like drastically i i like even the, the roto where we we made that long shot, it was still. You could tell that we had been in that theater so long because mm -hmm. there's so many rules. Like, yeah. Compared to the first roto that I went, like yeah. The first the first tour, you could just tell they're like, oh, this has to now go through a million layers of approvals and generals and this and that and like, yeah, you, you could feel it. And then the last one was like, I'm essentially working out and suntanning and shooting yeah. my pistol like. <laughs> I had a buddy that was in, uh, he graduated high school in 03 and then went, you know, just straight to the army, went over there and, went, you know, was in there. Afghanistan deployment. or Iraq? Iraq. What year? In 04. Yeah. 04. He would have been in Iraq in 04 and he was just, he was talking about like he came back for his second deployment. And they're like, all right, we got some rules now. Yeah. <laughs> you guys can't run over people in the Humvee. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Come on. Yeah. Like just like had 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 a little bit more oversight than they did in the in the but like you know i can't imagine so you got out a year and a half ago so 2022 yeah in april this year it'll be two years out yeah but there was like so there was nothing going on then not for me uh there was yeah it was like a, a fizzle out yeah of my, of my career <laughs> yeah and then did the drama really just start after Sean's deal? Or had that already started for you? No, that had already started. Yeah. Sean is where I just like started talking about it. Did they did they pull his podcast down? They did at first. So as soon as he released it, I remember I was in Montana going to do Andy Stump's Cleared Hot podcast. Mm -hmm. And uh, he just put it out. Sean just put his out. And then there was like this big response. Can Softcom send him like a cease and desist? on the thing it's like there's all these legal concerns with it you got to take it down and so he calls me and i'm driving back from montana and he's like man what this is what i just got like what is this and i'm like let me send it to somebody so i sent it to a friend and they're like 
this is nothing. Like, this is from a Kansoff major. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. He has no business sending this. He's probably going to get fired. <laughs> like, it's not right. it's not CSIS or RCMP, which if it was country to country done properly, that's like... Anyway, there's a bunch of things where he's like, you can just laugh at this. Like, good enough for me. So I told Sean, he's like, okay. So he, he talked about it, did another podcast with a lawyer about it, and like ended up putting up the episode again, I think. He talked to Kansas.com, like, well, okay, what's what's the big concern? And they're like, they didn't really have anything specific. Yeah. Because prior to going on his podcast, I had consulted with probably 20 different operators, like from low level to high level to retired yeah. to like high ranking mm -hmm. officers, non like everyone. Yeah. And I was like, here's what I'm going to go do. And here's what I'm going to say. And here's what I'm going to talk about. Is there anything I'm missing in terms of like actual operational security? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, like for sure. stuff we just don't talk about. For sure. Like, no, I think just, you know, maybe don't mention this or that. And I was like, yeah, okay. I wasn't planning to. Good. And also like you're on, he's a Navy SEAL. Yeah. You were, what, what podcast were you? Maybe 40 or something like that? Oh, I can't remember. Which, but it, which there, did, it was. there had been a bunch, you know, yeah. he, had, he had talked to Rob O'Neill yeah, yeah. already about Well, killing. the funny thing is this the story of this shot, our own government put it out. I think it was like a week later. Well, we still had guys in that position. That is an operational security concern. Right. Because it was my brother-in-law, his sniper team, that took the position from us. And because of that article, they got bombed. Oh, you mean a week after the shot? After the shot in 2017. Damn. they put the, the, That building got bombed. That because building got bombed the, because the article was out. And they had to like quickly exfil, lose that position, and like wow. were put in danger. But years later, you can't just But years later, I can't casually tell, tell, the, tell the, story. the story. Yeah. yeah. So. When everybody's out of yeah, everywhere. The big part that I realized is there was a, a COVID portion attached to my story. That's right. And that's what that's they didn't right. want out. Yeah. So they were just pulling at straws like, they oh, didn't, don't talk about this or that or this. And I'm like, they didn't like the fact that yeah. like, it didn't look good. I think you weren't part of the pandemic. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And that was like how my career ended. <laughs> Which is weird because like, it's not like they're secretive about how aggressive they are with all the bullshit around. Yeah. I don't know if it's like and all that. Yeah, no, it was it got crazy. I mean, like, like you can't even go into the country without it. So, like, what's the big deal that? Yeah, we've got Dallas Alexander who is like, "Hey, I'm kind of a little bit more on the freedom side of the aisle." <laughs> yeah. I don't understand like why that would. I don't know. Yeah. Oh, I get it. It was very mind boggling. Um. Well, both but, of our governments seem to make decisions that the people find mind boggling. Yeah, this is true. This is true. You guys have not escaped it either. <laughs> No, we have not. So thankfully, yeah, maybe there's a ray of sunshine, a ray of hope for both of us, but we got to get rid of both of our leaders right now. Yes, get sir. Get them out of office. Yes, get sir. one new in office. Yeah. Maybe they can just be buddies and they can both go to some island, island somewhere and hang out together. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wearing stripes, hopefully. But anyways, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> It's hard to hide my my thoughts and beliefs sometimes, but that's not necessarily what my show revolves around. And uh, I'll talk about it, but it's just not necessarily. I'm I myself am not. I don't I don't feel educated enough to really speak too much on on all of it. To to be honest, like I would before I did that, I would need to. I feel like I would need to have been through 
what someone like yourself has been through. You know, like I feel oh, like that well, should even, be a prerequisite for I somebody. Know, even me, like I, I, the whole thing was just, I believe quite a bit in freedom. Mm-hmm. And that was it. And I'm like, I'm not trying to tell anyone what to do or what they should or shouldn't do. And like, I don't know enough about politics to be commenting on everything. And like, yeah, I'm just like, I just want to be able to make my own decision on, let's say, what goes into my body. Yeah. That's it. Like, make an assessment. I want to talk to a doctor, talk to a doctor. None of them could give me answers. If we're talking about like the shot stuff, I'm like, I'm just about freedom. Like, right. I'm not an extremist. <laughs> you know what I For mean? For sure. Um, and then with the political side, I'm like, look, this is just, it's weird. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Man, it's, yeah, it's crazy how, well, there for a little bit, they just had everybody so worked up and scared, like legitimately, everybody yeah. was just so scared. Oh, and, and I get it. Like, yeah. I, there were some really, there were some, like, if you watch the news, I understand yeah. why you wanted it and all the boosters. Like, yeah. I mean, I don't watch the news, so maybe that's why. Yeah, I just, and then for me, like, regardless of how dangerous the actual you know, one nine COVID one nine is it in and of itself. It's just like, all right, well, I'm not going to sacrifice freedoms. Like, you know, like I'm still going to, all right, there's a risk of me getting severely sick and you know, like, okay, well there's, there's a risk of me of a lot of things, you know, and I'm just not going to sacrifice freedoms for that. But, and I understand if somebody decided that they wanted to, you know, take a shot, like you said, I'm with you. Like, I just, I don't want to be told I have to. Yeah. Like, look, these companies. And the moment you do tell me I have to, now I'm not going to. I want it even less. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. Even if it was going to work. Yeah. Matter of fact, <laughs> I'm not even going to take the flu shot anymore. <laughs> That's right. Well, I, I actually looked at it like the flu shot at first. And I, I've always, like, I've always declined the flu shot because I'm like, oh, I actually don't mind. I rarely get the flu. And when I do, it's not that bad. Yeah. So I'm like, I don't need it. And I'm, I've become like, this is my, as I age, a little bit more aware of ingredients and what goes into my body and stuff. So I'm like, I feel like I don't need that. And I just looked at this the same way at first. Like, oh, there's another shot for this thing. And I'm like, oh kind of like the flu and I don't take the flu shots. I'm like, the first one was just like, oh, no thanks. You know what I mean? Like, this doesn't have to be a yeah. big deal. There's no thanks. <laughs> right. And that's what sucks about this whole deal with your story is like, you're not trying to make a big deal out of anything. No. And I you was like I mean? ready to do, I was ready to be a, a team lead on a, a deployment to Africa. And I was like excited about it. I'd never like deployed in this area. And then it just like all crumbled. I'm like, yeah, and then it doesn't have to be such a big thing. Yeah, like just I just don't want to do this one deal, you know, like <laughs> yeah. And why is it so such a I don't know, like why are you just ruining people's lives over it? Yeah. You know, why can't we just disagree? Yeah. You know, and I and there's a lot of people like I've had some guys here that were going to be potential interns and uh it was crazy one day here in the warehouse, you know, usually we'll have one person a day come in and shop, you know, I'm I'm out in the middle, middle of nowhere. Yeah. But then this one day I had this borderline lifer that it was had been in the Air Force and um had like eighteen years. He was about to get out. And then there was that same day, there was this young, fresh out of uh uh boot camp Marine. And they're both faced with the same life decision. The yeah. lifer had like uh, you know, a wife and three kids and like he's about to be um retired you know at 20 years and like he's gonna have all these benefits and they both were faced with the decision of getting that shot and they had to and the the um the air force guy like he was borderline in tears 
like explaining to me and this young guy, because the young guy didn't have anything to lose. Like, heck, he just got out of boot camp. He's in shape. And he, yeah, yeah, yeah. he's like, no, I'm not going to do it. They kick him out and he goes and does something else. Like, yeah, whatever, you know? Totally. And this other, it's, it, it was it was me watching like, dang, this is so complicated. It's been made so complicated, yeah. especially now years later when uh, a couple of years later when everybody's like, okay, it doesn't actually prevent anything. Yeah. And you could still, you <laughs> yeah. it's like, damn, y'all ruined some people's lives oh, over this. It was I Dallas felt, being one of them. I felt bad. They made my life better. I'm so much, I, I had a very good career. I was happy with it. Mm -hmm. um, but like I'm, I'm blessed to be playing country music now. And just hear more from my family. Yeah, let's talk about that you know? instead of that other bullshit. <laughs> yeah, tech uh, can't blame my bloodline. So like, it's crazy how much of like a so there's Nashville, and then we have down here Texas country. Oh yeah, it's wild how similar you sound to the Texas country guys. Well, I think it's because the kind of music I listen. To. I'm such a big fan of it. Like really? this is oh yeah, this is this is where I want to come play music. So if you're out there and you got a music venue, you need an opener gig somewhere, you just give me a shout. Uh, I'm going to be spending a lot of time in Texas because I want to play music here. I'm when gonna, do you plan on coming back? Um, I don't know. So I'm working on the the visa right now. Mm -hmm. So I need a visa to be able to play music here. Um, and that process is underway. So as soon okay. as that's done, I think we're going to probably move down here for a handful of months at a time. Between here and Nashville, um, Nashville's a great hub for insanely talented artists yeah for uh, sure so it's a really good place to go and write and be inspired and stuff but like this is where my favorite music kind of is and my mm -hmm. sound and i really love it in texas so i think we were talking about it don't know where yet yeah it might even bounce around a little bit but just come and start playing yeah there's a lot of in austin you know with uh um the music scene there's a there's a big movie scene in austin and then obviously, you know, with Joe there, there's a comedy scene. Yeah, and a bunch and of podcasts. So there's a lot of podcasts. podcasting out of Austin. It's not far from San Antonio, which has got a lot of like uh, creators and influencers. Um, college Station, Huntsville has like a, you know, college towns, but Fort Worth is pretty good. I heard that. You know, Fort Worth is, you know, we usually, I usually try to stay away from downtown Austin and Dallas. Those two like. Okay, good to know. I mean, Austin's got it's great, but there's there's just a vibe on certain parts of Austin and in Dallas that don't necessarily fit a cowboy from West Texas. Yeah. You know, we've just got a little different. But Fort Worth is very much got like would welcome this. Okay. Have you been to the stockyards? No. Yeah. So so I have like a full day here tomorrow and the rest of today. So I was just gonna go explore. So you point me in the right direction, I'll go. Wander yeah, the around. Fort Worth stockyards. Okay. When's your flight out? Not till the morning of the twentieth. Okay, got like all day tomorrow. So I got a deal later today. You do have all day tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. So we should meet up. Okay. Cool. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Because the the stock show, and then uh, yeah, we could take you. We'll do something. Go to the stockyards or something. Love to. Um, actually, Fort Worth. But essentially, though, um, yeah, those are kind of the places. And then most of Texas is like what you see here, like yeah. little bitty towns like this. Yeah, I think I really like that. Like when we would come train here. And it was Canadian, Texas, that little yeah. county. I That's guess. up in the panhandle. Yeah. Um, but the town just had like one like saloon in it. And I went in one day, there's live music. And then I was following it a bit. And they'd have artists that I like roll through there sometimes. And So I'm, I'm, I'm so your album, um, is this your first album? This is my first like studio album. I put out a, 
like a live album a while ago. And that was more because I was starting to play bar shows and everyone kept asking me if I had music out. Uh-huh. And I didn't. So there was a lot of places just weren't booking me. So I recorded one of my shows of just uh, all original songs and I put it out as an acoustic, like a, a live album. Uh-huh. And that one was, out, I, I think, because I listened to it and then I listened to, you know, the growth over a couple of years of playing. This album, I really like that one. I'm like, I'll probably take it down after. <laughs> Once this one's all it's out. It's just not what you're... Yeah, I mean, I get some good response. There's people that, you know, really love the song. I'm kind of torn, actually, because I get some really nice messages about the, the songs. And so I'm like, we'll see what happens. But yeah, this is my first studio album. And uh, I'm excited to have it out on vinyl. There's two of the songs that are out on like Spotify and Apple and stuff like that. And, and is can't, can't Blame My Bloodline is one of them, Yeah, right? Can't Blame My Bloodline is the, the newest one out. And Child of This Land was the one I put out before. Um and then other than that, you can only hear it on this, this vinyl. Mendota Ranch. Jason Abraham. I think I heard of that place, actually. Mendota Ranch. Yeah. Yeah. Um, sorry. I, so that's Jason Pelham and Jason Abraham. So uh, anyhow, I'm sorry to be distracted. I was just really curious if it was the same person. It must not <laughs> be. Right. I'm sure they know each other being in Canadian, Maybe. Texas. Like that I town has it. like yeah. 5,000 people in yeah. it. Um, one question I had, when did your, what's a T, what's TL stand for? Uh, like team leader. Team leader. Okay. So when, when did he become your actual brother-in-law? Was well, it his sister or your his, sister? No, his sister. Is who you married. Yeah. But we're still engaged. Uh, we got engaged right before we weren't allowed to travel. <laughs> anyway, okay. We want to do a destination. So we're kind of planning it right now. Oh, cool. Uh, I call her my wife. We've just been together a while. So it's yeah. essentially my wife. Gotcha. Um, but yeah, that was, uh, I want to say 2014, 15. Like I met her just, I think a little bit before our first deployment together. And then, uh, I, it's funny cause I asked his permission if I could like yeah. take her out on a date and he was like, hell no. That's hilarious. That's <laughs> like, oh man. Okay. So at first actually it's his fault. I was living in a, an area downtown in Ottawa and she was working at this like fancy restaurant. I was like, Oh, you got to go check this place out. I was like, Oh, it's a little fancy for me. He's like, I'll go. He's like, uh, Sarah works there. You, it's getting, it's amazing. And I didn't even clue in. Like I, I, I'd known at some point that he'd had a sister, but like, I just didn't clue. in. I didn't remember. So I go in, go to the bar and like order a drink. And then I'm like, wow, who is this? And then we, we chat a bit and like, I did not put it all together. We're going to the shooting range the next week. And he's like, oh, did you ever go check out that restaurant, Giovanni's? And I was like, yeah, I went in. And I was like, you wouldn't believe who the... And then, like, before I said it, I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> like, that was your sister. That's <laughs> hilarious. Then he, like, gets angry. Uh, but I, So I started going back there more. Yeah. And we were chatting a little bit. And then I asked his permission to take her over dinner. And he's like, no. <laughs> Hell no. I was like, okay, fair enough. So I told her, I'm like, yeah, we can't really chat anymore. Uh, and then I guess in the background, she was harassing him. And eventually he sent me yeah. an angry message. Like, And he's like a very intense guy anyway. He's like, look, call call Sarah. She wants to go out for dinner or some bullshit. <laughs> it was like, that was like funny. his permission <laughs> to yeah. me, you know. I think he planned it all so that we could be brother-in-laws. And we live right beside each other too. Well, so not to get too much into your, your personal but I was on a, a an event, a Can Am event. They're out of uh, originally out of Canada, 
and I was um, for three or four days. I was hanging out with this family, and they and but they were telling me that like a lot of people like married people don't get married as often in Canada. Is that some? Is that a thing? I feel like the French people bring down the percentage okay. ratio. There's so like maybe it was more like French specific. Well, it just it would bring down the whole number. I guess you know it would it would bring down the average because gotcha. like I got a lot of. French buddies are like, oh no, we don't get married. Like, okay, like so we, it was like, French specific. Like, it's not a Canadian thing. I don't more. think so. I've never heard that before. Outside of like, you don't my think French it's friends. a Canadian thing? No, I don't. Think I got so. you. Okay, I'd, I'd only heard that from one person, so I wasn't real sure if yeah. that was like a, a fact a, check. That yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, cool, man. Uh, well, today's an exciting day. Um, I do have a. I got to get to Dallas this afternoon, but I have. Um, we're gonna go buck some bulls real quick. Very cool. And some horses. All so right. if you you know if you'd like, love to have you over there, and we'll uh, yeah we'll go do that. And, uh, I'd love to. Yeah. Yeah. So, I don't cool. know if if you've been to a practice pen or anything. I know you've been to a rodeo. This will be kind of front row. These these are a little turn toned down than what you might see at a yeah. at a rodeo. It's funny. Sarah gave me one warning and don't one on rule coming down here. She's like, "Don't get on a bull." I was like, "Well." I mean, we'll see. <laughs> I'm not a bull rider. But like, let's say it was off. She's like, you, no, you're going down with one rule. That's hilarious. And then even my daughter, who's now just turned three, was like, yeah, Papa, you can't get on a bull. because You could, you could break your finger or your shoulder, she told me. Yeah. And then she's like, you can't play guitar. <laughs> um, well, we've had, this has been our a, a really cold snap for us, five, six degrees, you know, and so... Um, we have not been practicing for the last week, yeah. and so this today is the first nice day of uh, of the week for of the month of the year, I guess. And um, so we're uh, we're itching to get out and and just do something, buck something. Yeah. So that's uh, that's why it's so quiet because everybody's over there already getting ready. Yeah. So all right, everybody, check out Dallas Alexander. Can't blame my bloodline. Uh, look him up on Instagram. Um, this record you can only get on my website right now. So dallasalexander.ca. And that's because I'm offering the whole first press, 1,000 records, uh, all signed, all autographed. Yep. I'm going to get this one signed. So check it out online so you can get a signed copy. And uh, make sure it's in focus. There it is <laughs> right there. Um, yeah, so check that out. I'm Dale Brisby, and I'm on to the next one, Olson. Thanks, Dallas, for coming on, buddy. Thanks for having yes, me, sir. man. I really it's appreciate it. It's good to it. finally meet you. Yeah, likewise. Pow, pow.